On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. This week on the Indo Daily. I asked her to leave me alone. I felt like she was harassing me and she was insistent that, you know, these were just coincidences. Catherine Martin, she is in favour of scrapping the TV licence and giving money to RT direct from the exchequer. Tanish Michael Martin, dead set against it. No way, not happening. Find and follow us at all the usual spots and over on the Irish Independent website. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. This is the Rugby World Cup on the left wing. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Left Wing Podcast. Will Slattery here with you and with Ireland on a down week, it gives us a chance to explore some other World Cup avenues. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Owen Slott, Chief Sports Writer of The Times in the UK. And we will be discussing a new book that he has collaborated on with Lawrence Salalio called The Boys of Winter. And the book was released to coincide with the 20-year anniversary of England winning the World Cup back in 2003. And basically what Owen and Lawrence did is they traversed the the length and breadth of the UK, catching up with almost every squad member from that famous triumph, kind of charting the journey they went on to win the World Cup, how England weren't able to stay at that level thereafter, and ultimately catching up with them and what they're doing 20 years on. So I'm delighted to welcome Owen to the show. Owen, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having us on. No, no, my pleasure. And in the life of a chief sports writer, you're going from the World Cup to the Ryder Cup. Uh, no rest for the wicked. Well, I, yeah, I don't really want any rest at the moment. I mean, what a, an incredible sort of sporting phase we're in at the moment. Uh, the Ryder Cup starts tomorrow, and um, uh, that's one of the most epic events for me. So I wouldn't, wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Yeah, it's no harm to get a little bit of a break from Steve Borthwick and the England squad, potentially, but you know, hey, you know. I, <laughs> well, you say that, but, you know, I, I think we'll all be signing up with, with the Ireland team quite soon, you know. We'll, it's everyone's second team at the moment now. Yeah, well, look, you have a better chance of getting to a semi-final than we do, uh, judging by the draw anyway, but obviously plenty, <laughs> plenty of rugby uh, still to be played. But yeah, it's rugby while we have you here today. As I said, uh, The Boys of Winter, absolutely brilliant book for anyone interested in the history of the World Cup, especially if you're flying over to France in the near future. Ideal kind of airplane companion. I actually picked it up in Stansted Airport myself a few weeks back and uh, devoured it on my flight home. So the kind of summation I, I gave there, Owen, is that a fair summation of what you and Lawrence wanted to achieve when you collaborated on this kind of journey setting out across the UK to kind of find these guys who are part of such a historical moment in English rugby and English sport. Yeah, yeah, pr- pretty much. I mean, the the, the um the, the the fun part of it is we didn't really know what the book was going to sound like or what the story was going to be. We we obviously had the the basic narrative which was them winning the World Cup and then 20 years on how the, the really interesting bit for me was 
how being a World Cup winner um, uh, spun out the rest of their lives or the, the following 20 years. Um, uh, for some people, it was it set them up forever. And some people have and others have kind of looking for the same high again. And um, so hearing, hearing that side of things was uh, a side of the story that we hadn't heard. And I, I and um, the, one of the things that I hadn't really appreciated, but came over pretty quickly um, when you are talking to uh, these um, rugby players 20 years after, after the biggest success of their playing lives is how, how 20 years sort of matures memories and, and um, uh, changes, changes the, the narrative slightly from the, the glory, glory, hallelujah of, of, of what we had 20 years ago. And people start sharing with you actually how, how it was that they felt about various things back then and um, what was going through their, their heads. And I'm not saying that the way they were back then was a sort of PR percolated version of, of, of the Happy England camp. And I'm not saying it wasn't a Happy England camp at all, because it was, but, but the, um, the, 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 the feelings and thoughts that, that some of the players had back then, they didn't feel that they could really express, were able to come out. And uh, doing it with Lawrence Delalio was hilarious in that respect, because um, he, he's, he's a sort of guy who kind of prides himself on having his ear to the ground and knowing, what, knowing what's going on. And um, and there were sort of many occasions when his jaw would drop when someone would tell him, you know, exactly what what was what was going on back in Australia twenty years ago that he wasn't actually aware of. So we didn't know what the book was gonna was gonna sound like. Um, and and that's I, I suppose that was one of the real joys of, of the process of, of finding out. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the different perspectives because there's a number of passages where you and Lawrence leave a meeting with one of the players, be it a you know a key man in the team or, or someone lower down uh, the totem pole, the Driftwood, as as you guys or they described themselves at the time. And yeah. Lawrence says to you, "God, I really didn't realize he was feeling that way, or I didn't realize that's how he felt uh, about a, a certain issue." It, it is funny, even within the squad, like the household names roll off the tongue for people who might not be as well, like Johnny Wilkinson, Martin Johnson, Lawrence Delalio. Neil Back, Richard Hill, Jason Robinson, Josh Lucy, but there's a number of other guys in the squad who interestingly actually formed the backbone of the team that against the odds got to the World Cup final in 2007, who have very different perspectives on how it went. Not necessarily all negative or anything like that, but just very different how they looked on from maybe off off stage versus the guys who were the leading roles. Yeah, c- completely. Uh, and they sort of um, gave the honest version of, of what it's like being on the on the periphery of the squad or well, maybe not periphery because you're in the squad but if you're a non-player i mean uh, every every rugby fan reader journalist has heard about you know the squad's really tight we're all in this together it's a squad of 30 or 33 now and um and it's not about the 15 on the pitch it's it's the whole group and and i think every um uh um coaching team wants to make that um as much the case as is possible um, and and if you look back to the story that we wrote twenty years ago, that was certainly the sort of thing that we were saying. And Clive Woodward would say it quite a lot. You know, it's it's not the fifteen, it's not the superstars, it's the whole group together, and we couldn't do it without everyone in, in there together. And then twenty years later, um, sure enough, a load of the guys who who didn't play in that final were sharing how painful they they found that process. Um, you know, Kieran Bracken who fought a sort of 10-year battle with Matt Dawson to be the um, England scrum half. Um, on, on the day that it really mattered, the World Cup final, he 
he he lost. He was on on the bench. He was the second choice scrum half, and he didn't get on the pitch. And um, I had no idea, but that really really hurt him. Still, twenty years on, he says, "You know, I uh, I'm a World Cup winner, but am I? I didn't play in the game, even though he played in the in." In the um, that World Cup, he played in their crucial, massive World Cup um, group game against South Africa, which was a sort of defining moment for them. But he didn't get on for the World Cup final. He says, "He says I've got an MBE. Why have I? Why have I got an MBE? I I didn't play in the final, and um, it, it it really hurts. And and it and it just tells you that all that we're all in it together is pretty hard for some people to live with." Yeah, well, in terms of this kind of the armpit stuff for a second, like one thing that people look back on for sure, I think when they look at this England World Cup winning team, they do remember it maybe as a 10-man team in terms of style. But it, funny enough, when you look at the way they played in the build-up, they were scoring tries for fun, like, you know, running in massive scores. The outside backs were getting on the ball a lot. But when it came down to Cup Rugby, you know, against South Africa, one try came from a block down. The World Cup final, one try. Semi-final, no tries. Quarter-final, one try. But they won them all. But like... Do you think, was it the pressure of, of actually delivering on winning a World Cup that, that, that kind of maybe caused a slight shift? Was it just how the games unfolded? Was it how the form was at the time? Because they did play a lot differently or certainly their score lines were vastly different. And I feel like it, it kind of defined the team's legacy. People kind of misremember some of the stuff that they were actually really good at that they didn't actually do in the World Cup. Yeah, th- th- that team um, uh, was actually a, a very exciting, entertaining running team, if you like. But in in 2001 so their their peak is a sort of a, a, a feast of entertainment was two years earlier and, and um and and you're right they did get tighter um the closer they got to the world cup or the world cup final and and maybe it was a, a cup rugby thing they they knew they knew how how they had to win and um and and certainly the the story at the time was um the the, the australian media in particular were very enthusiastic to to kick up was um, how it was a ten man team. They, the, all this sort of um, uh, complaining about England being boring and um, the Australian media was was hilarious at the time talking about boring England and and they list used to do they ran lists of boring Englishmen sort of outside of the even outside of the rugby team um, and, uh, and and that was largely focused through through Johnny Wilkinson. Um, there was a famous headline in the Australian over him taking a kick, saying, "Is that all you've got?" Um, and um, yeah, I don't know—is it is it criticism or a compliment that they that they they found a way to win, which is still a uh, an expression that, that we use today? But you know, if you've got if you've got a if you've got a a, a weapon like that, like Wilkinson, then then you're just nuts if you don't use it. And, and I think I think also the other thing that you have to um, remember when you go back to that team is that Wilkinson's um, uh, kicking and his range was so good that 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 became a weapon not just because he could kick the three points but uh, psychologically it played to to the other teams into the other teams' minds that they um, that they had to play such clean rugby anywhere within kicking distance. And and so if there was anything sort of 40, 50, 55 metres, they'd give it to Johnny to kick. And he was so good that that played psychologically into the game that England were able to play. So so they they did become a team that that, that grew the score in, in three pointers. Um but but yeah, it, it, the, the tri fest, if that's what you want, was um was two years earlier. 
Yeah, the psychological point you make with Johnny Wilkinson's ability, I think is so key. I don't think there's ever been an out half like that who was just so automatic and, and, and struck fear in the opposition just from the tee, let alone, as you say, a swashbuckling gun of five-pointers out wide. Johnny Wilkinson generally, like when you got a chance to revisit him, I found him very fascinating. I got to interview him about 10 years ago when he just retired from rugby and I had never talked to him. I was maybe expecting a, a slightly robotic or maybe slightly dull character, but he was anything but. He was so like, self-analytical and self-critical are very willing to delve into his own kind of personal psychology around rugby and his career. And I love the line he gave you guys that he still practices his kicking almost every day. Like that, I actually found astounding. That was probably like my favorite nugget from the book. I just, can you just give us an insight into that little piece and just him generally now? Because he was such a kind of, I suppose, driven guy back then, like overdriven almost. Like what's he like today? Yeah, yeah. So, so we, um, excuse me, we interviewed him at Penny Hill Park, which was was and still is the the where England England train, and it's kind of like his spiritual home, if you like. So it was kind of fitting that that we got to see him there, and um, uh, uh, and part of the 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 interview with him was about how he um managed to um get through the the experience of the World Cup in '03 because. He he very much took it on his shoulders. He, um, but 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 uh, he 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 took it on his shoulders so much that he would barely leave his room. He he couldn't enjoy himself. He got it into his head that if he did, was enjoying himself, then he wasn't working hard enough on on his game. Um, uh, he got asked in one press conference if if he was worried he was turning into a basket case, um, which. Honestly, those words were used. You know, you, you just recoil a horror at that. But again, that shows how the world's changed twenty years on. And you know, he he was. Um, we we know now that he was psychologically pretty frail. But back then, no no one really under, understood it. Um, you know, I, I think maybe now you could say that he was sort of on the verge of a nervous breakdown back then, and that he just steeled himself to pull through it. Um, <clears throat> so he talked. To, he talked about that. Um, and how he and, and how he got through it, and he he would say that um, he felt that there was no other way for him to do it that he couldn't enjoy himself, and he could only perform on the pitch by behaving in this sort of monk like um, uh, 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 way. And, um, and and one of the things that Lawrence and I were really hoping to to glean in the sort of what happened next part of his story was, you know, have, have you. Have you found a, a happiness? Have you relaxed a bit? Have you taken your foot off the pedal a bit on the sort of self-analysis, um, uh, self-driven kind of element? And and I think the answer is is, is a very guarded yes. Um, but he's still it, the the self-analysis never ends. Um, he says he doesn't recognize. He says he's not the same person he was there. He's he's not that man there. But then then as you say. Um, and 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 this happened just at the very end of the interview. It was it was almost like a a, th- a throwaway question, just like, um, well, I, I asked him first, what what have you done to replace kicking as your passion or or the thing that drives you? Uh, you know, what what is what is your obsession? So I said, do you have any do you have any obsession? And I said, you know, it, it could be gardening, maybe it's cooking, maybe it's another sport. But I says, I kind of suspect it's probably something different to, like that with you. And he and he said, my obsession is me. And and if anyone else said that to me, I would sort of think they're probably pretty arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> but you can never call Johnny arrogant. His his obsession with me is understanding himself and how his mind works. 
And and then and then the throwaway question was, oh well, have you um when did she last do any kicking? And he said, oh just just last night. And and Lawrence and I sort of looked at him sort of curiously. So what do you mean? He said, well. Yeah, I come back down here to Penny Hill to to kick every evening after work, or if I if I can find some time spare to do it. <laughs> We're just like, hey, you you retired ten years ago. What on earth's going on? Um, and he he said, you know, it's part of his mental um, karma. It's 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 his mental training. It's like you or I might go go to the gym, or someone might meditate, or or whatever. It's how he keeps himself together. But it just like extraordinary that he could do that. And then he said. The, the, then he said he's better now at kicking than he was when he was a World Cup winner. And I don't know. It's a very extraordinary, extraordinary man. Um, left a massive mark on the rugby world, the whole world, really. Yeah, it's the line that he's better now at kicking than he was then, which I I found very funny. And yeah, you're right. Like it's such a he's such an interesting character. I really I I don't think that part of the book in particular. I think people uh, will get a lot out of. Like as I mentioned, a lot of people familiar with the big names who. Of someone maybe people wouldn't be as familiar with, were you the most taken with their story or you found their story the most interesting? Trevor Woodman, I mean, would you class him as one of the big names? I mean, he was a, he was the starting uh, loose head in the, in the team. Um, and um, he was... He, 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 he struggled with what happened to him because he was quite young going into 03. And um, the year after he got injured... And the year after that, he had to concede defeat. So two years later, he was hoping to be a lion, but um, he ended up watching the Lions um, tour lying down um, on the floor in his living room because his back was in such bad shape. And so he never played again. And um, he was so torn by it. He won 22 caps. And every time he would say 22 caps, he would use the word only. He'd say, I won only 22 caps. And we're going, hang on a sec, you... You're a World Cup winner. You know you you got you got to the top of the game. You did things that every rugby player wants. And he goes, but I got only 22 caps. And 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 he was um, the fact that he won the World Cup didn't seem to didn't seem to make that all right. And 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 that really hurt him um, hugely. Um, he he struggled to deal with that for a long time. Uh, other players struggled to deal with. With other things, Mark Regan, the, who was the third choice hooker on that um, on that World Cup, he revealed to us that he he was eighty percent deaf, and and again, Lawrence was like curiously sort of looking at him, going, "What what did you say?" And, and he said, "Yeah, from from um, uh, from a young age, he 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 lost eighty um, percent of his hearing, and um, he was always that he was they never told a teacher at school, which sounds strange, but anyway, so he was always stuck at the back of." The classroom at school considered the thick kid because he couldn't hear anything, and um, uh, and I think largely on, on the back of that he developed this loud, not surprisingly, but but literally loud, larger than life character, um, who was a sort of the, the the chief joker in in the in the pack, if you like, lots of the jokes bringing him on himself, um, and 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 he turns he he says to Lawrence, oh, I was I was deaf, and Lawrence goes, well, you why? Well, why didn't you tell us? And this was another theme of the book, which I found fascinating: is what players kept hidden from their teammates. Um, uh, Kieran Bracken um, uh, had had some very bad o- OCD anxiety experiences, and he kept it hidden from his teammates. And um, and that was kind of like I, I had a chapter on the go, which the working title was. I changed it in the end, but the working title was 
what it what it means what it meant to be a man and to be a man back then in that team you you had to show no vulnerabilities you had to show no weaknesses and that's kind of still um uh, heavily the case in rugby culture these days but but we are in in, in a in a in a advanced world where it's okay to talk about mental health. I mean, the words mental health never went together in 20 years ago. And you know, you it's think- funny, sorry, just to cut across, because Lawrence, I think, in the book does kind of push back and says, oh, you definitely could have come and said that. And even to be fair, Karen back is like, no, nah, Lawrence, that's compl- like, we, I definitely couldn't have said that. And Lawrence said, no, you could have. We were so understanding. I was like, mm. from the outside looking in, I don't know. I, obviously, Lawrence knows it better than me, but I, I think Karen also kind of pushed back a little on that. Yeah, no, no, c- completely. That, that was one of the funniest that 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 was an amusing exchange for me. That that, that Lawrence is, is going. No, I would have I would have been there for you and everything. And, and Kieran's saying, "Listen, it was my dirty secret. You know, I you you just don't reveal that sort of stuff." And, and Lawrence is going, "Oh, you'd have been fine." And Kieran's going, "No, if you show if you show weakness in that lot, then 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 you're out. You know, you don't last a minute." And Mark Regan said said the same. He said, "If I t- if I'd let anyone know I was deaf, I would have just been out of the squad." Mm. What about Clive Woodward? It's funny, like, you know, the thought did occur to me that he must have been an easy man to get to talk about 2003 since he never stops talking about it usually whenever he's on television or, yeah. or in his columns. Uh, like, how does the kind of achievement, the journey, the aftermath sit with Clive Woodward today? Well, he's, um, you kind of touched on it a bit. He's very proud of it. And it's, you know, it's, it's essential to, to to him and his story. One of the things that was, that was very interesting about uh, uh, our interview with Clive was, um, he sent a note the day before saying, "Are you all right if if Jane, my wife, comes on as well?" Which is like that was a, a bit surprising, and and no one else um, said that. You know, it was like, okay, that that's fine. But but actually, that gave gave everything a, a, a really interesting um, perspective because she was. She, we, we we kind of know Clive's story. We're not 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 to suggest that he doesn't have anything more to to say because he always does. But but to have the perspective of his wife on what it had been like being married to him at that time, um, what 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 it was like being married to you know he was called he was dubbed the crazy professor, but but they like to call him the the, the great disruptor and and the and the, the the life that she had to 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 live with with all this stuff and 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 I said to um. I said to her one thing, which I was kind of really interested in, whether there was a sort of a deep answer. I said, "What what was it like for him? What was what was it really like for him around that period when there was so much pressure to get everything right? You know, England were expected to win. He was expected to win. He had to deliver. He made big brave calls. You know, it, it must. He did he did he come home and and say I'm worried about this? Did he did he share what were his anxieties? And and I was sort of wondering if she was going to say, you know, open a little window into his soul. Um, and and she said actually, and and, and it was it was a, it was a, a brilliant answer. She, she she didn't really open a window to his soul, but but what she said was actually at that time was when he was at his most alive. His, his, he was most enjoying life. He was absolutely on the front foot. You know, he was he was really sort of firing on all cylinders. And and he it wasn't that he was had had anxieties. It was more that he was just loving what he was doing because he because he felt he was doing it well. Hmm. And one comment from Clive Woodward 
uh, I thought was very kind of insightful and, and it shows what happened after the World Cup. He said, if you told me kind of a year later that I wouldn't be coaching England anymore, I would have thought I was caught up in some sort of like tabloid scandal. It, it's kind of startling how quickly the wheels came off. I, I was just looking look at the numbers. No World Cup winning team has ever had such a drastic decline in the subsequent four years. England's record after that final, before the following final, 20 wins, 27 defeats, a 42% winning percentage. The second lowest was 62%, so 20% worse than the second worst ever World Cup kind of defending champions. And obviously there was injuries, retirements, but a new touch on it at length in the book, and it's a really interesting passage or chapters, you know, all of the guys giving their perspectives about why they couldn't sustain it. But it, it is still startling to revisit it now with 20 years later and just look at the set of results that, that even though they got to the World Cup final again, but kind of the intervening period was just such a significant drop-off to what they were maintaining for four, five, six years prior to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's... um. It, it, it's it's astonishing the drop off. I mean, it was so quick, um, and you know, in, England rugby is not not in a great place at the moment. But God, if you could have those four years back again and and revisit some of the decisions that were made, um, mainly at RFU level, um, if you, if they could have gone back and thought again about how you you know how do you deal with being a world being a World Cup winning team, how do you how do you make the the, the team and and the inter, the national rugby better? You know, the, it's the greatest opportunity you have in you'll ever have, um, and, and it was just chucked away so thoughtlessly, so stupidly. You, we can say now with hindsight retrospect, it, 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 it if if they'd used those four years better, then then the subsequent sixteen years might have been totally different again. Yeah, and I think nothing says that to me other than the fact that I think half the, the squad played the following Saturday. So they won the World Cup on a Saturday, maybe or Sunday, I don't recall. Arrived home to London or England on Tuesday. Half the squad played that Saturday. Like, I know it's a different time, but that's like an utter disgrace, really. Like, when you look back at it now, like, even knowing it was a very different time, but the idea that Martin Johnson had to play yeah. it's, five, it's six days after lifting the World Cup is been at least Lawrence Lalio got one week off, you know, like, but even he says by the following summer when he had to, they were kind of press ganged into another tour, he he had almost hit rock bottom mentally. He was so drained. Like, it, like that all, ah, geez, yeah, it's just, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? it? It's so, it's so crazy. It's so, it's so wrong. But I, I, I again, I kind of, um, if, if we're talking to, to mainly Irish audience here, it, it it just shows the, the 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 difference in in the in the setups between Ireland and and England and the RFU and um, you know twenty years ago there was just as there is now there was this tug of war between the clubs and the player between the clubs and 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 England about who owned the players and so the, the these World Cup winners get back from from the World Cup and immediately the the clubs are going. Right now we want them back. Now now we now we got them. And 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 somewhere in there was 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 the thought um, that you've got to cash in on it, which which is correct. You know, so rugby fans, new rugby fans all around the country wanted to see these players. So you kind of don't want to hide them for too long. Um, but but you got to there, there's got to be a better way than putting putting them on the field four days after they just just come back from a from an international flight across the world and seven days after they've just won a World Cup. Yeah, and before they even got to do the parade, because I was thinking, when did they fit that parade in? Because I remember seeing they're all in the grey suits, and that was like another week or two later. So like they like it was just yeah, I suppose it just shows that the the, the night and day in terms of the the, the the prep, and I suppose the the kind of them being forced into action so quickly leads me on to my next question, which is, uh, you know, people obviously Steve Thompson, his story is well known, but there's other players in the squad, both physically, 
you know, who, who have taken their toll from from 20 years on and some of them suffering kind of some memory issues as well. Like there is kind of a, a sadness or that side of it as well that it's an important part of the story. It's not quite as obviously nice to talk about as, as some of the other stuff, but it is a kind of an unfortunate part of the story that has to be told as well. Yeah, yeah, that that completely. And I, I suspect that side of the story will get worse, um, you know, in the next 20 years. There'll be other players struggling in different ways. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's not such a surprise that a lot of them have got bad knees, bad shoulders, that sort of stuff. We 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 kind of know that. Um, Twenty years ago, you would have obviously we would never have thought about um, memory loss um, early onset dementia. You know that that wasn't wasn't really in there. Um, so we had to tell that story. But the thing that the thing that kept on coming back to me when you talk to these players is is you you retire from the game. And 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 your body is going to carry on breaking from the game that you played, but once you've retired from the game, no one's looking after you apart from yourself. So there's no duty of care from the RFU for whom they won the World Cup or their clubs for whom they you know played all these years. Once you're done, you're done, and um, you've got to pay for your health insurance. You've got to pay for your knee replacement or whatever. And um, again, talking to Kira Bracken, he was he was sort of. Laughing about the, the the nonsensical part of this all, he said. I he said I wanted to go skiing with the family, and I tried to get some. I tried to get some uh, some medical insurance for it, and they said, you know, can you just tell me if you've had any uh, any injuries or, or 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 operations or whatever recently? And he sort of five minutes later, he's still listing them all off, and they and he says, I I just can't get I can't get health insurance anywhere. I can't I can't get insured to go skiing. Um, and um, yeah, that's not maybe not the the, the worst problem in the world. But the, these guys, they're on their own, and that, I I think that's still the case all over the world, isn't it? That you once you're done, you're done. Yeah. One thing I would like to ask you that wasn't really in the book, I suppose, is from a journalistic perspective, what it was like covering the team then, and then what it was like for you then to kind of revisit all these characters, and if it kind of changed what your opinion was at the time or. If, if there's anything like that, like what was the team like to cover then versus how you're finding them now? Um, the the uh, team was, I mean, back then uh, we we talk about uh, journalists talk about access to players a lot and how easy is it to sit down and talk to someone and and um, I suppose that was the end of the era where you had most of the teams. Um, phone numbers in your in your phone or in, we probably contact Puck still then and um, if you wanted to do an interview you, you could still ring most of them up and say you know can I um, meet you for a coffee somewhere or um, uh, the, the opportunity to get to know them and, and understand them spend a bit of time with them was was much better so there was a, there was more of a uh, closest, but maybe not quite the quite the word, but the distance between um, media and, and 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 professional athlete, not just rugby union, has um, uh, grown considerably in the last two decades, and that that's that's not really um, such a surprise, I suppose. The the back then, you know, the players had their personalities, and you know. You thought you knew who were the big personalities and 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 who weren't, and that was largely because some of them were the more senior players. But um, um, it was it was fascinating that someone like Trevor Woodman, um, uh, who was a, one of the quieter people, didn't, didn't give great interview. Um, 
you know, he's such a fascinating person now. Lewis Moody was was regarded back then. You know, his 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 nickname, not within the squad, but his nickname outside of the squad was was Mad Dog. You know, he was this sort of crazy um, open side flanker who would throw himself into any contact, put his head anywhere. You know, no no sense of his own safety, etc. And um, was considered a sort of a nutty kid, if you like. And and he's such a mature, sensible, intelligent, lovely guy to talk to now. So. Uh, yeah, we, twenty years later, I've seen a lot of these guys grow up, and they can look look back on themselves and how way they were there with perspective, and that that was fascinating. Well, Alan, I really appreciate you joining me for that chat. I found it so interesting. I really ho- encourage our listeners to go out buy the book, "The Boys of Winter," available in all good bookshops. I am sure. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us on. Well, I really appreciate it. Lovely to talk to you. Well, that's all we have time for on today's episode of the Left Wing Podcast. We will be back tomorrow with another show. And in the meantime, you could subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or listen on independent.ie. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Listen and follow the Left Wing wherever you get your podcasts.